When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we are with the last of our 10-episode bonus season experiment. Rebecca, we made it to the end. We did, and I'm sad that it's the last one because these have been a lot of fun. They have been fun, and we're working on how to continue them into the future. We want to keep doing them. We probably won't do them every week, but we're figuring out a way where we can do the extra episodes and flex these these muscles that we've gotten to flex here on an ongoing basis. So stay tuned for that. Um, we're going to be doing the regular Sunday night news shows on a regular cadence until the heat death of the universe. But at some point in the future, we'll bring back some bonus episodes. I guess it would be helpful. What would you like to know from people as we're deciding oh. what to do? Their favorite episodes is one a week. Is I don't know what what could they tell us that maybe would be helpful. Like the, we want to make stuff they like, so I guess just what you liked about it. Yeah, that like the favorite formats maybe because we've done mm-hmm. a couple book nerd movie hours. We've done a couple book club clubs. I think we only did the one. Does it hold up when we were reading um, right. Interpretive Maladies after twenty years? But we have a long list of books that we might be able to do that for revisiting things mm. that have been out for a while. We did the newsy thing with Nobel. Half-baked ideas we did. We did half-baked ideas. This is more of a, we're calling this Adaptation Nation because it's not like, you know, one book to one movie. We have a bunch of book-related adaptations of things. Um, Mm. Yeah, I'm interested in which formats folks liked, what they liked about them, if there are, you know, specific books or adaptations or things that are coming up that are on your radar that you'd like to have an episode about or other ideas for things that feel like they're in this wheelhouse of sort of crossing over wider culture into literary discussion. Yeah. Other formats and segments that we could do. Mm -hmm. We're trying to keep it between 30 minutes an hour for these um, is kind of the idea, but we're going to keep doing it. We had a good time. So thank you guys um, for hanging in there. It looks just by looking at the the numbers that people like them about as well as they like the regular show, which mm-hmm. we didn't know going in yeah. if people would like them less, they'd like them more, whatever. So I, I'll take that result to start. At least. Me too. I'm really happy with how it's gone. And it's been fun to get to experiment with how we think about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world yes, of and reading. Right. <laughs> because in the old days... Uh, nine weeks ago, <laughs> we would have just noted that these things had prepared, had premiered. We're doing yeah. Adaptation Nation today. So we watched at least one episode of His Dark Materials, which premiered recently on BBC. I think there's two episodes available. There are four episodes of Watchmen, Damon Lindelhoff's take on Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' The Watchmen, which is on HBO. And then all the episodes are out for Emily Dickinson. No, it's just called Dickinson. Just Dickinson. Which... Premiered or debuted or was released on Apple TV Plus on November first. So they're all recent. I guess Watchmen's been out the longest. It's only been a month, and we, I think, we covered the news of all of them in the regular show, saying, "Huh, isn't this interesting?" And that's generally where we'd left these things before, unless we'd gotten to the end of something or we'd watched one. We might have mentioned the future. So this is a. Mm-hmm 
kind of a follow-up to the kind yeah, of news story we would have done in the past. We would have just had these conversations off the air before, <laughs> at least about right. at least many of these things we would have done and talked about and watched and talked about. Um, so it's just been cool to to bring them out and get to investigate further the things that we talked about as news and stuff that was happening, but actually find out like what is going on with this Dickinson show, for instance. So we're going to go in somewhat arbitrary order just to give us a sequence from what we would consider the most faithful to the source material to the most liberty with the source material. And the second two, we might even have a discussion about how you parse that, which it's fun. Um, (laughs) I guess my first question for you, Rebecca, if we hadn't done this show, which, if any of these shows, would have you have watched organically for Rebecca Fun Time? I would have tried Dickinson because the trailer okay. was such a trip. I would just need to know <laughs> what was going on there. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that I would have made my way to Watchmen, but probably not as it was airing live. It would have, I think that would have been something like there are enough people in my circle who love mm. the comic um, or who are really excited about the show. And I've been seeing it bubble up, you know, coming across my dashboard on social that I think I would have gotten there, but it has the feeling of something that I would have like marathoned all of them over my Christmas break or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would have been interested in those two organically Um, Dickinson more urgently probably than Watchmen just because it looks so bonkers Um, and his dark materials. I would not have paid attention to at all. What about you? And then which, which, Oh, um, I'm not entirely sure. I think like you, I was going to do the rubbernecking on Dickinson, at least for one episode. Like it's really as much of a weird, chaotic fever dream as it seemed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to answer that now because that's we call saving it for the segment. Um, I'm not sure on his dark materials. I think it would have depended on, I know some people in my life that are into this, whether they thought it was good. And then Watchmen's complicated, and I guess maybe I'll talk more about that when we get there. So I'm not sure. I think the only one for sure I would have tried even a second of uh, is Dickinson. I'm kind of off TV in general. I've, I've been reading, reading, reading more movies. That's how movies work. <laughs> Watching more movies this year as part of a year-long project. So I'm, I need the burden of proof that start a TV show is fairly high. Um, let's then do this other sort of big picture question before we get to the specific series is, which, what, if any, familiarity with the source material for these three shows did you have? Uh, let's see. So I read his dark materials. Well, no, I read The Golden Compass, just the first book of the series, mm-hmm. when the movie came out, I guess about a decade ago, um, when they did that sure. adaptation. Ish. Whenever, Decade-ish, ish, yeah. Ish, sometime in the early 2000s. Um, I read that. I didn't have any familiarity with it from childhood, so I also didn't have like that childhood attachment to the story, but I was mm-hmm. curious um, so I read the I read the Golden Compass. I watched the movie. I have like no memory of the story or the movie, which does not bode well for fascinating. For, <laughs> which I think reflects just this is not the type of story that I'm interested in typically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was reading it. It felt like homework, I think, to read it and just know what was going on in the culture at the time. So it felt like I was coming relatively fresh to the show. Um, I know, uh, I think a moderate amount about Emily Dickinson. I had a few teachers in high school and in college who were particularly interested in her. So um, Mm. I think I'm carrying probably your average English major's worth of like wonky (laughs) facts about her. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a few other extra things and just, you know, personal interest forward from that. And then Watchmen, 
I saw the movie when that came out also, you know, in the, I think, late late 90s, early 2000s, whenever the Watchmen um, Mm -hmm. movie came out, that was, I think, very faithful to the comic book series. And I remember enjoying the movie, but also did not like deeply encode what it was about. It was that was like just a movie I went to for entertainment. On my side, I am closer to the source material in our respects, I think. I Mm -hmm. read His Dark Materials, the whole trilogy, in one of those giant paperbacks on the beach in the Dominican Republic about a decade ago. I have a very distinct reading memory of that. I mean, how could you not? Oh, yeah, Um, that's nice. And then Michelle and I both liked the Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman-led movie version, which apparently was a box office disaster, which is interesting in the context of this. Um, Watchmen I read a long time ago. I've taught Watchmen in a couple of different contexts. My relationship to it has changed over time from, isn't this amazing to, yeah, it's pretty good to, it's overrated to, it's a modern classic, much like many modern classics, it has strengths and weaknesses, but it is definitely influential, continues to be influential. Some say the most artistically, literarily, literarily influential comic of all time which is worth unpacking. We could do a whole mm-hmm. series of episodes about that. And I think it does bear on what Lindelhoff is doing with Watchmen. And Emily Dickinson, she's an American poet from the mid-19th century. Had to study her, know a lot about her, know, have spent a lot of time with the poetry. I think in the case of... I think it's interesting. I think the more you know about the original Watchmen, the more you get out of the TV show Watchmen. Mm. And I think for the other two the less you get out of it, which is weird, but we we can come back to that uh, here in a minute. All right, we're going to start with His Dark Materials, starring mostly people you haven't heard of in the first few. I, so I did two episodes. I should say okay. that. I did two episodes of His Dark Materials. How many did you do? Just the first. Just the first. So it's James McAvoy plays G- uh, Lord Asriel. The one-minute synopsis of this show is, I think, part of the problem with it, which is you mm. cannot do a one-minute yeah. synopsis. It's a version of the world as we know it, set in a time and place that feels like the 1920s, sort of art deco-y. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are dirigibles. Airships are a big thing, like you know you would have seen in the 20s. Um, trivia, the spire of the Chrysler Building, which was completed in 1929, was originally intended to have airships tethered to it. Wow. So that's that's the moment. That's like, that's the fork at the sliding doors of where we left his, the world of his dark materials in terms of the timeline as we understand it. There's a world of, it's a world of magic, but it's a little bit different. It's more embedded. So every person has an animal demon that is their companion, that is part of their soul. It can talk. Um, and until you go basically through puberty, it transforms itself into a number of different animals. But once you become a woman or a man, it's a little unclear what that moment is. We get a ritual about it. But mm-hmm. at some point, it fixes itself to a particular situation. There is a large religious body that's called the Magisterium, which is a pretty thinly veneered Catholic church stand-in, yeah. I would say. Um, it starts out in Oxford, England, one of the Oxford colleges, Jordan College, I believe, and Lyra is our main character, who we are told has was orphaned at an early age, left in care of the college by Lord Asriel, played by James McAvoy here, grows up in the ivy-covered walls um, of the college, and then we, so the story picks up in her 12th year when Lord Asriel comes back from the quote-unquote north, having made a discovery that is 
heretical to the beliefs of the church and threatens the basically epistemological paradigm of the universe in which we're in. And the larger arc of the story is towards figuring out what that mystery is, figuring out what Lyra's part in it all is to play, and the fate of the universe and everything, basically, is what it is. What are your th- What was your initial impression of the show? It's fine. Like, that's it's kind fine. of, that's how I felt about it. It's fine. Um, I had a... I love Ruth Wilson, who plays Mrs. Coulter, um, who mm-hmm. shows up near the end of this episode. I've um, been a faithful watcher of The Affair on Showtime for the last several years, and she's wonderful in that. And I think her face just does a lot of great work. Um, so I'm interested in seeing her. And then I just felt like, okay, it's a story of like a clever, sneaky child who's spying and wants to go on an adventure, and she has a destiny, and there's all these adults conspiring both for her and against her, and the world is very complicated. Like, I think you summed it up perfectly that it, it's impossible to do the elevator pitch for this, um, for this story. It's beautifully produced. Um, the I think the pilot episode was, is trying to do a lot to introduce viewers to the world and to all the sort of like not mythology but just to what exists in this world right that everybody has a familiar Mm -hmm. and that also there's this thing called dust and like apparently talking about it is very dangerous for reasons but we don't know and children keep disappearing to something called the gobblers that may or may not be real like there's all this danger and whether it's real or not or how real it is is unknown um I think that I did myself an accidental disservice watching this one last um, because mm. the the world of Watchmen and the world of Dickinson are just like super rich and interesting and layered. And this was beautifully produced, but it didn't feel like I was sucked into it nearly as much. I felt like it was fine, but I also like, I kind of don't trust my reaction here. Um, It feels to me like this is a show that is produced for people who like the books. And also I think it's aiming for a younger audience. There's a lot of camera time on Lyra or Lyra, whatever. And on um, her younger friend, I think his name is George. You see the kids talking and like sort of plotting things between each other. And the way that the adult, the acting is a little, not over the top, but the acting is a little exaggerated in some places that made mm-hmm. it feel to me like they're playing towards a younger audience, towards younger people watching this and identifying with the characters. And I think it could really work on that angle. Like there's stakes and it's scary, but it, there's not real there's not real scary stuff or real terror happening yet in this first episode. Um, I feel like I'm just not the viewer for this show. I had that in my notes. Who is this show for? And there's a couple of ways to think about that. Is it for people who love the book? I wonder about this about adaptations. Mm. Is the idea that the people who love the book are going to be your sort of what they call advocates in the, the wider culture and they're going to get excited about it and then it becomes a thing? Because the fact, the numbers has to be that most people watching any of these things that are reasonably popular have no idea what's going on in the book. So in a way, it should be for interesting for people who have never encountered the idea at all. Like it has to be the case that probably more people have exposure to his dark materials after one episode of it on HBO than have read the book entirely. I don't know if that's true, but it's got to be in the same ballpark in the millions, right? And so what is the work, what's interesting then about an adaptation for which you know it's going to happen? And I think it has to be that the execution is so interesting that even though you know it's going to happen, it's watchable in its own right. And I think you said this is fine, but I wasn't 
excited about mm-hmm. how they were doing it. It was beautiful. It was capable. The CGI of the Animal Companions was actually fairly outstanding and astounding for a TV show. Yeah, that's but true. But I kind of know where we're going. Like, I know it, like... Uh, not to spoil things, but I know what the Miss Coulter's deal is. I know what Lord Asriel's deal is. I know what's going to happen. I know. I just found myself wondering, like, what am I watching this for? And I, if the execution isn't top notch, there's not a lot for me to stick around for, I don't think. Yeah, I think that was another thing that led to my feeling that this might be geared towards a younger audience. Or if it's not intended for the for a younger audience, I think that might be the audience that settles on it that are um, at that age where you read some like you read a story and you become super attached to the world of the book to those characters to the way that things play out and you want to see a very faithful representation of it on screen. I guess so. Like that's my I don't know if they did that on purpose or not. But I think that the viewer for this is like someone who cares about the story from the book because it's not I don't find I don't think it's interesting enough to just hook someone who doesn't know anything about it um to sit down and keep Mm -hmm. watching the series like I think that if Bob had been sitting with me while I was watching this as he he was sitting with me while I was watching some of the other ones he would have just like tuned out and picked up his phone 10 minutes in of like well why do we care like I don't know anything Mm -hmm. about this story this is fine but it's not compelling and you literally can't figure out what's happening if you have it. Like you have no like. There's it's again, a this big is, yeah. It's a big info spoilers dump of the first for the episode. first couple episodes. But like you get you know the the little rip in space time where you can go between worlds. It's just there, and someone just walks through it. Dust is bad. We we can't talk about dust. Okay, I don't understand the paradigm of the world anyway. So this thing that is her- the sort of counterfactual to the world that I'm supposed to not understand is supposed to bother me. Mm-hmm. Like the stakes are really hard to understand. The only thing you really understand is once one of the kids gets captured, we got to find them. Like Lyra yeah. is captured or not Lyra is captured, but her friend is captured and she wants to go find him. But then that's a kidnapping drama. And you know me, I'm not about <laughs> that life right now. I'm not interested in bad things happen to kids. Yeah. I'm just not. I think point. one of the things that it, that propels me to keep watching a series or to even keep reading a book series is how many questions do I have that still need to be answered? And right. the only real question that I had after this the first episode was like, what are the gobblers and how real are they? Um, and then I was thinking about Pan, which is Lyra's familiar and like, oh, right, I need mm-hmm. to refresh myself on the significance of Pan because Pan is a mythological character. And there that's that has to be an intentional selection there. But the other two things that we watched, um, which I just think His Dark Material suffers by comparison to Watchmen mm-hmm. and Dickinson, but even by itself, I just didn't have a lot of questions. There's not there's not enough that happened in this episode that made me be like, I need to know more about that or what is this or like let's keep going like they don't explain what dust is but also it's kind of like i i don't care it's like a bunch of cranky old men in an academy who don't want the truth to come out about something like or they do but they don't it is very hard to understand it's very hard to understand like one of our you know one of the things if you've watched tv for a while you like to see characters from other shows pop up like oh it's that guy so we Mm -hmm. see you know the the headmaster or you know the dean or whatever this college is um has, oh, what's his character's name in The Wire? Freeman? I think it's Freeman. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, he tries to poison James McAvoy, but then he tries to help him. And you're just like, I get that part of what you're seeing is the world through Lyra's eyes, mm-hmm. but she understands way more than we do, and it's still not explained to us. And, you know, one of the geniuses, again, you, well, I'll talk about this in a minute, but one of the geniuses of the Harry Potter universe is that 
Harry and we have the same perspective on the world. So as he encounters the world, we learn about it as he does. So he has the same questions, he learns the same things, so on and so forth. Where this, there is no one in the show that has our level of understanding. Mm -hmm. So no one gets to hear the answers to the questions we have, which becomes kind of confusing. And it it is a trope of, well, many kinds of shows, and Watchmen is no mm-hmm. exception. Is is like part of what keeps you going is there are things you don't understand that you want to understand. But yeah. if you do, if you have read the trilogy, well, then you just understand you're not understanding that they just haven't explained it very well yet. And the other thing I got thinking about Harry here, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of lot of parallels in terms of the structure. But the thing it got me thinking about is like, of course, someone wants to adapt his dark materials. They tried the movie. It's a big property. It's a big IP. You know, there's a real chance for this thing to be a monster hit. But then I got to thinking about young adult pitched or young adult genre fantasies that have become successful series. And depending on how you count Harry, it's middle grain that sort of turned into YA. Mm -hmm. The only one that really made it to the end, and even people didn't like the end as a movie, was the Hunger Games trilogy. The the graveyard of failed YA fantasy franchises into movies is significant. And there's only one survivor, I think. It's only Harry at this point. So is yeah. this just harder than people think it is? And Harry is like the exception that proves the rule. I think so, too. Um, we And you also got Twilight in that same... Yes. In that same, right. So what was happening in the world when they first adapted his dark materials for a movie was all of those things. Harry Potter was big. The Twilight. Hunger Games was happening. And Twilight was happening. And I think there were a lot of producers in Hollywood casting about for like, what is another thing like this that we could latch on to and turn into a successful franchise? Mm. And as you said, this was a box office <laughs> disaster. So I think that's my first question is like, why did HBO go back to this? Like, why do you go back to this? Well, because you're not remaking something that was beloved the first time that it was adapted you think you can get it right i guess and there's enough interest in it to get it right i mean you think of like i mean the crash and burn that was divergent mortal engines went nowhere percy jackson Mm -hmm. then after two like there's way more failures and there are successes and i say twilight it is why it is fantasy but i think the thing that got people into that i could be wrong is it's a rome at its heart it's a romantic story which is different Mm -hmm. than what we're talking about here and Hunger Games is dystopia as much as it's, I'm not even sure I'd call Hunger Games the movie versions. I'm not sure those are YA. That's my, I mean, th- we can oh, argue yeah, about genre, agree. but mm-hmm. I'm just not sure that that even falls in the same thing. Where Lyra's 12, like even she's borderline, she's not middle grade, she's not nine, and she's not, not 16. So even that is just kind of in between us. I'm just not sure. And I agree that the interestingness that happens with Watchmen especially of taking a franchise someone knows and then subverting expectations, and, but the show being interesting in its own right is kind of the way forward. I, a, a faithful adaptation of, let's be honest, a second tier IP. His Dark Materials is a second tier, but mm-hmm. only because Harry, Lord of the Rings, that's first tier. It's not on the same level of those things. But a faithful adaptation of a second tier IP it feels like a recipe for disaster to me. That's a recipe for fine. That's what it is. That's what re- what's a recipe for is fine. Yeah. Um, let's do a sponsor and we'll come back. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. 
Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, Black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, Black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Um, Watchmen, well, you, you, you didn't know the graphic novel, so it's hard for to say, but I think it is next on the fidelity ladder because while the events of this, the series are not what happens in the graphic novel Watchmen, from what I've seen from the first three episodes is the, the, the presupposition of this series is that everything in that book happened and it's... 30 years later, kind of like Force Awakens was for Star Wars. Mm. It's 30 years later, all that stuff happened, and there's some ongoing consequence of all those things happening. But it's fundamentally a different story, but the elements, the themes, the symbols, the representations are all jumbled and reconfigured in some way. Lindelhoff has called this a Watchmen remixed, and I think all I want now for my literary adaptations is remixed after this idea and this execution. This is all Mm -hmm. I want now. Mm-hmm. I agree. I love Damon Lindelof. I watched Lost, even though all the way to the end it was, or yeah. at the end it was disappointing. And I loved The Leftovers. And the second season of The Leftovers was for sure a remix because it was completely off book. And they were just inventing, like further inventing the universe of that story and taking the characters out of where they ended with Tom Parada's, um, with Tom Parada's novel. And I, I loved the first episode, I, I gave myself the pilot of each one of these series to discuss, like, mm-hmm. would I keep going? Um, and I basically knew nothing. Like, I did some Googling after the fact to establish for myself that this is right 30 years after whatever happens in the comic book. And I learned about who Rorschach is and did some work there. But um, that it feels current and of the moment. They weren't trying to tell a story that is set 
30 years ago. They're telling a story mm-hmm. that's happening right now that takes on current social and political ideas. That's like, it's weird and it's fun to watch. And there are a ton of layers to things. There are all the historical references on top of historical references. There's music. The soundtrack is super interesting. There's also weird stuff that happens with time that probably has to do with this being based on a comic book. But like, you could have just started this show on HBO and been like, this is a new series HBO is doing about like, here's the elevator pitch for it. And I would have watched it. I don't need to know that this is an adaptation of a comic. I don't need to know that it's a remix of an existing story. Like just by itself as like, if I didn't know that the Watchmen comic book existed, I think this stand like this can stand by itself as an interesting series. And it's just made richer probably as you were saying by familiarity with the book. So one of the things that made Watchmen so influential is that the subtext and sometimes the supratext of Watchmen is the idea of the superhero and the superhero comic and the superhero story and the superhero trope. Um, taking, you know, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons took characters from the back catalog of DC, made a gritty sup- superhero show about it that was about power, it was about surveillance, it was about truth. Um, and made a really interesting document. You know, it's very much of its time of the 80s. I think 83 is when Watchmen came out. And it was re- a revolution in sophistication for the kinds of ideas that were appearing in comic books. And the series Watchmen that we're getting now keeps that keeps that as the DNA. It wants to continue the ideas and the feel and the concerns without keeping the plot and character necessarily front or not keeping the same plot and character even though they exist and the more you know about the comic you get easter eggs and you i think you can be a step or two ahead of figuring out where things are going and who is who if you've read Mm. the graphic novel or you saw the the movie and remembered literally one second of it um but other than that the the concerns are extremely fresh one of the things watchmen the comic about was terrible it was race and race is front and center it is the entree and the side dishes in damon lindelhoff's Watchmen, the the new story is about, set in Oklahoma, I think in Tulsa, um, it begins with a scene from a historical, a real historical episode of the Tulsa race riots in 1921, um, as the backdrop for a history of racial violence and tension in the Tulsa into the future. There is technology that does not exist in our world. There's also people with real supernatural powers in this, but it's feels like if you told if you said the date was 2019 with those constra- conceits aside it could feel like 2019 totally um and we get people who are superheroes at least in dress and attitude but not power so regina mm-hmm. king who plays sister knight aka fantastic. angela abraham who's fantastic um basically is a she has like batman kinds of powers which means she has tools and she has extraordinary physical abilities but she's also not a billionaire and she can only sort of do things a very 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 capable police officer can do we get tim blake nelson as looking glass who's sort of a mirror of rorschach which is the original character that the seventh cavalry which is the antagonist of the show the white supremacist organization that's the antagonist of the series to this point is he has he wears a sort of weird mirrored head mask and his superpowers what cognitive or behavioral psychology it seems to me mm-hmm. psychology of some course he's not doing anything except using what you know kind of uh, psychology or um, cognitive behavioral psychology on steroids could do um, 
And then after that, it's like Red Scare, who's like a Russian who just likes to beat people up, who's on, who's on the side of the cops. But it is, I mean, all of my intellectual wheels were turning from like the mm-hmm. ninth minute here. And yep. I think that's what ultimately is gotten me fascinated in here is the, the plot is interesting, but the ideas are really interesting. And the way that the original comic is being remixed is really interesting. And I don't know what's going to happen even more than what's going to happen, I'm interested in what the show is about. Because even after three episodes, I'm still not exactly sure what the show is about in a meta sort of way. I mean, race is a topic, but what is it about is something else entirely. And I find that thrilling at this point. Those two things that you just said of, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm not totally sure what this show is about. Like, I think those are... The, those are the things that keep me watching something mm-hmm. um, unless it's so well established what the show is about. And I'm then deeply into what the show is about, which I think Ma- like Mad Men is a great example of that. Like you're looking at a particular time, but Mad Men is fundamentally a show about a guy who's not a super great guy and he's not interested in becoming a better guy. This is who he is. Um, and we're seeing his life and then we're seeing him in the context of the world that he lives in and eventually mm-hmm. the characters around him. Um, I don't necessarily need like a change related character arc if it's very clear what this show is about and what it's trying to do. But I like, I find that confusion or uncertainty maybe at the outset of something very pleasing it's a really enjoyable experience and I had the same thing of I was like okay but why is there an all-black performance of Oklahoma Mm -hmm. other than that's just a cool idea and like I am not a great student of history so I had to go google what little bighorn was and why that was the code that was coming (laughs) up on their beepers and how that's connected to the historic seventh cavalry which gave me insight into why like the white supremacist are called the seventh cavalry here and then I have you know like what on earth is happening with jeremy irons who is super weird and why is his butler trying to cut his cake with a horseshoe like what what are (laughs) like what what's happening there like i just have many questions what's happening there why are the white supremacists taking watches apart like are the watchmen an actual reference to watches Mm -hmm. or are we just talking about the act of watching something or maybe it's both like i love that same sort of unsettledness where it feels really rich and really interesting and knowing damon Lindelof we won't get answers to all of the things um but it's going I think it's going to be a fun journey to the to the what's going to happen and that they remixed it and made this story about you know police violence and race and like those are open questions still in society so is this intended to be ultimately a reimagining of how things could go is it intended to be some sort of prediction is it a wish for an alternate world um it's I don't know super interesting yeah, and um, as a fan of comic books and of musical theater and the Midwest, yeah. <laughs> the all-black performance of Oklahoma in the middle of this document was as, I mean, catnip is maybe not strong enough to how interested I was in just teasing out the layers of signification that were happening on this. So the the Don Johnson plays the local police chief. He and his wife um, and Regina King, her husband, are supposed to go with them, but they're not there. And it's a production of all of Oklahoma where all the characters are black and in this world you may not know if that's to the characters in the world weird or not it could be that's what it was like Mm -hmm. most of the police force in this universe is black and we get these inverted scenes of a black police officer pulling over 
someone who's white who's driving a car and it's remixing sort of a primal scene of racial violence in our contemporary life mm-hmm. and turning us on his head and looking at it from different directions so i was like well maybe that's just what oklahoma was it's just you know this is tulsa there's a history of race here that we're that maybe in this world oklahoma was always an all-black cast but then it was referred to later as black right. oklahoma so even in the context of this tv show which is a remix of a foundational work in a genre it's including a remix of a foundational work in a different genre, because Oklahoma is kind of the watchman of musical theater. Like, yep. it's weird to say that out loud, but in 1941, what Oklahoma did to the genre of musical theater made it more complicated, made it darker, made it longer, just did a lot of different things that actually became what we have known as story-driven musical theater. Didn't really exist prior to 1941 when, when Rogers and... Um, Hammerstein wrote Oklahoma, wrote Oklahoma, which is it's and it is Oklahoma itself was based on something else (laughs) called Green Grow the Lilacs, which was this weird play that ran for three months in January of 1933. That was a largely a failure and they changed the ending. So like Black Oklahoma is a remix of a of a influential thing that was actually an adaptation of something else. And I was just like, whoa, galaxy oh, brain. Right. I just couldn't handle it. it was It was happening yeah. at the same time. And Oklahoma also is very bad about race, the original, mm-hmm. and making it black Oklahoma is an acknowledgement of the racial blindnesses of that show and actually more than blindness, some actual like, you know, hurtful representations of people, especially from the Far East. And just like that kind of layering suggests a complexity and a mind at work, and who knows what's going to pay off, but it 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 rewards investigation, and I guess yeah. that's so interesting for me at this and point. I think so. I mean, you can hear all of your dopamine firing at once yes. yeah. <laughs> right now, right. and I think that like that it rewards investigation and is evidence of a mind at work is also a hallmark of Lindelof. TV, mm-hmm. that there are always a lot of intentional layers and some mysteries and some stuff that was put together in a very creative and thoughtful way. Like nothing is an accident here. Um, I went down a Google rabbit hole that also taught me about the similarities, like the in cultural significance of Oklahoma, the musical and Watchmen as a graphic novel and how they are both groundbreaking and paradigm shifting um, within their respective genres. And then also like the scene where Don Johnson, where they're all at the dinner party sort of near the end of the show. And yes. Don Johnson is singing. People will say we're in love to his wife. His character's first name is Judd. The track at the end of the first episode where he has been hung um, is like opens in spoiler Oklahoma musical. With, yeah. yeah. Right. We'll spoil the first episode. That's okay. Right. For, we got to talk about it. The first yeah. With poor Judd is dead. Um, mm-hmm. So they've even gone that far that the character, names are similar it's there there is so much happening the episode is but he's made. singing the women's part he's singing the woman's part at dinner which is just like yeah and everything you would expect is flipped around a little bit and you're so uneasy and unsettled it's exciting it's, like, it's exciting right, and, right, and it's like what's happening like you kind of can maybe relate to the idea that a person might get up at a dinner party and start singing a song from a musical maybe you have weirdo friends like i do that would do things like that but it's also just like it's uncomfortable like what is he about to do because this character has some edge to him and he doesn't look like the kind of and also he's like snorting coke in the bathroom so like Mm. what's what is he doing here when he jumps up to sing this song the episode's title comes from an oklahoma lyric it's summer and we're running out of ice and like Mm. what does that mean in the world of the watchmen are are things at a and i think we know in this episode like tensions are starting to peak the seventh cavalry people have thought was like sort of underground but it looks like they're coming back and things are building and there's a big shootout at the cattle ranch and 
like, okay, it's summer and you're running out of ice. You can't keep the heat controlled mm-hmm. anymore. So what's going to happen when it gets really, really hot? Um, there was just so, there's just so much there. I like, a, I love a show. I love a book, a work of music where it's just layered and there's so much to unpack. There's just a lot to dissect here. Yeah, so... Um, I think this is the only one I'm going to continue watching, which maybe mm. is a segue um, into Dickinson. How many Watchmen did you get through? Did you say I only got through one of each? I I got through one of okay. each of these. Yeah, yeah, I did three Watchmen's, and the third one. This is not a spoiler, really, except I know you'll be excited that Gene Smart makes an appearance in a <gasps> yes. in a main role. Yeah, I'm um, in for Watchmen. I'm going to finish the season. Um, okay, so let's proceed to, to Emily Dickinson, but let's do one last sponsor. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shu Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shu Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shu Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased more sus when he and Shuei barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. I'm afraid this is where we're going to diverge on Dickinson. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, would you like the pro or the con? Or I mean, to go gonna... first. You're the pro. You're the, you would like take, to go first I, yeah. or second? Mm. I want to. I'll well, go I first. did the setup for the first two. Give us the yeah, synopsis. Yeah. I'll do the first, and then okay. give me your take. Yeah. So I think the quick pitch for this is: it's a show about Emily Dickinson as a late teenager, set in the nineteenth, right, nineteenth century. Yes, eighteen fifty ish. Yeah. So yeah, ni- yeah set in the mid nineteenth century, um, where the world and the characters look period appropriate, but they talk like modern people and they have like sensibilities of 2019 and the show brings in artistic sensibilities of 2019. The soundtrack is modern. So like old timey people and settings, but all of the culture 
it feels very current. And then there are also some creative, weird, almost fantasy-esque like elements of how the story is told. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it feels a little like you're on drugs. Like I, <laughs> I, I think I joked when we watched the trailer of like, I'm going to need to get high before I can watch the whole thing. And I feel now having watched it, that like you don't need drugs if you're watching Dickinson because it itself feels like you're on drugs alone. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say like, maybe this is the part that maybe, maybe this is the part that is interesting for people to understand when you say the cultural feel, it's like they behave. Yeah, it's like it's like it's not like if they dropped down Haley Stanfield in 1851 in Amherst that this this is how she behaved. Except if you just sort of downloaded her mannerisms and attitude is what you would get. She's dressed like a 19 year old in the late 1850s, but she talks like a 19 year old in 2019. Like she's sassy at her parents, the way she holds her body and her mannerisms Mm -hmm. and kind of like lounges in this slouchy position across the couch. She's very mouthy, for lack of a better term. Yes. And sarcastic. There's a great moment where her mother tells her for some reason, like, you are not a cat. And she's like, tragically, I'm a woman, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, And it's just uh, like very, she's very fresh. Um, and the music there's a lot of hip-hop and like some house music that plays and it to me it feels even weirder than the juxtaposition of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet which is just a nice thing that we happen to have just watched that right but in that case like the characters look modern the soundtrack is modern everything about that world is modern and strange and they're just speaking in Shakespearean language and this is maybe an inversion of that where the world looks old-fashioned the characters are dressed old-fashioned but the language and the soundtrack are um, are brought up to speed yeah i think that's that's right if if there is a frisson of pleasure it's the disjunction between they're out there getting water from the well at four in the morning because they need it to start cooking and we're hashtag millennial talking and that's kind of funny i guess i don't get it like mm. I don't understand the point of it is kind of where I found it. I'm incredibly... not sure what what's what's the point, and, and I, I don't mean this rhetorically. Not that not that there is no point, but I didn't understand what was productive of clashing sort of an 1851 setting and social normative kind of world, and dropping in in a Freaky Friday kind of way. Like, what if a millennial mm. woke up tomorrow, didn't know anything about their current state of being, but talked this way? I'm not sure what friction, what spark has produced that friction that I'm supposed to understand. I think it's, this is how you get millennials to care about Emily Dickinson or or to care okay, about yeah. a poet from the And 1850s. why do I do that then? And then why well, do I do that? Right. So Emily Dickinson, like, matters, I think, not just because of the work, but also, like, Emily Dickinson, the person, was subversive. And that story is only really just starting to be told that you know like what i learned in high school was that she was just reclusive what we know now (laughs) is that she was queer and she was having a relate like she was in love with her best friend who became engaged to her brother like it's a fascinating story and a fascinating life that wasn't really told and so like and i think if you were to set the whole thing in 
period piece land with like old fashioned settings and dress and language and try to get a bunch of millennials to care about it. It's just not interesting. Like then my mom is watching it. You know, my mom is watching the period series about Emily Dickinson. Um, But updating it to be like, like, this is youth culture. And this is something that millennials have been largely responsible for bringing into mainstream culture is the addressing of queer identities and the sort of looking back into what the untold stories about artists, um, significant artists from the past really were and bringing those like, no, she wasn't just a recluse. She was gay. And like, she was kind of Mm. miserable because she was a progressive woman at a time when women couldn't be progressive. And she probably did think it was bullshit that she had to get the water and her brother didn't just because he was a boy. But in this show, she actually gets to say it. I, I just found it so satisfying. That's interesting. I guess my reaction was more along the lines of Dickinson was subversive. She was strange. She was a challenge to anyone's idea of a woman at the time, but even our idea of a woman now and an artist now and what it means to create art and what it means to create poetry. And I guess I kind of have a similar, I'm, I'm not hating on it, but I have like a quizzical look on my face, much like when we talked about the water dancer, like why make Harriet Tubman magic? Harry mm. Tubman was awesome by herself. Like, why may Emily Dickinson different tell the story and tell it straight, which is weird because Emily Dickinson says tell the truth but tell it slant, <laughs> which is an Emily Dickinson <laughs> thing. But in this is like the truth of the story presented in a way that's energetic and dynamic seems like enough to me. And it's, it's its own kind of erasure to say, well, what if Emily Dickinson but quirky? I, I just feel like mm. I don't know what I'm... Why are we doing that and not the thing itself? If the thing itself is interesting, then why... Why spin it on its head, uh, you know, do a dog and pony show to get people to pay attention to it? It feels like, it's like using a Trojan horse, but then the Trojan horse is full of explosion, explosives. <laughs> it just blows up once it gets in the door because then it's gone and you haven't invaded anything. Th- there's there's that, something else going on here that I don't get. I just don't. I think, um, yeah, yeah. I think that the- And like, it's me. The there, I'm sure it's me. The there is there for like the feminism- is front and center. And they have this, Emily and Sue, um, her best friend and lover, have this conversation about why Sue has to be engaged to Emily's brother. And it's yeah. because her whole family is dead. And if she doesn't get married to someone, she's literally going to starve. And like they really hang a lantern on where women are situated in this world. Emily's friend wants to publish her poetry, but her father freaks out because what will people think of the family? And he doesn't approve of you know women doing those things. So you do get the the old fashioned sensibilities coming in. I feel like I've just watched enough movies set in this time period or old fashioned kinds of things where girls weren't allowed to do stuff and their fathers held them down and they were subversive that like Emily Dickinson's story is significant, but it just wouldn't be, I think it just wouldn't be interesting to, or wouldn't be interesting enough to like make a compelling TV series about it to just tell another one of those stories. And it happens to be that this one is about Emily Dickinson. Like to me, mixing it up makes it is what makes it really interesting. And she, it highlights, I think it highlights how subversive she was like that, like there's a rapper playing death and she's talking about how she's in love with death and she's obsessed with death. And I was like, is that Wiz Khalifa? Like what's, Mm -hmm. what's happening on screen here that she's doing this, but the way that they also um, show, when ideas come to her, it feels weird and cool. And there's a nice little moment at the end of the first episode where she's working on Because I Could Not Stop for Death. And she's like sitting up in the middle of the night writing. And in the last moment of the show, she goes, nailed it. And I was like, I just, I love this. Like, I think we get to see 
you can imagine some emotionality to her that was at least totally lacking in the way that I learned about Emily Dickinson. Um, it's, well, because it wasn't true. I mean, well. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's because that's not. I think it's just not for me. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's like Emily Dickinson's real story is fascinating and weird and enough of a mystery that Mm. that's enough for me. But that's why I was an English major. And that's why I read a biography (laughs) of Emily Dickinson. Like, I I don't don't need this This, to get on board with it. Yeah, that's the difference is like this show is not for people who have read the 400 page biography of Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And I guess if something... Again, I I should I didn't read anything from any of the creators of these shows before watching it because I didn't want to look at it through those prisms. I'd be super interested to see what um what's her, I can't remember Angela something I think is the showrunner behind this one. Uh, it's not someone whose work I was familiar with before. Mm-hmm. Like, what does a win look like? Like, does she is she hoping people discover Emily Dickinson? If people, you know, is this a kind of um, manic? representation of her subversiveness like how do you represent 1851 subversion to something Mm -hmm. that someone will understand as subversion today because writing 1800 poems on scraps of paper and never leaving your room or almost never leaving your room in 1856 or whatever was radical in its own way but it just feels weird and sad now and it was weird and sad at the time but Mm -hmm. i don't think it feels radical now so how do you how do you visually and artistically represent to people in 2019 how would how would Emily Dickinson need to feel like to us to represent what it felt like to people in 1866 reading Emily Dickinson poems for the first mm. time? I think that project is super interesting. I'm just not sure it succeeds. Yeah. I'm not the the transmitter and the and the the uh, radio aren't matching up for. for I me think that this particular. is. I think that at least from the pilot that the show is not so much about how did other people feel about. Emily Dickinson in her world, but what did it feel like to be Emily Dickinson? And that she comes across the way that she does and she speaks in millennial speak makes her relatable to today's audience. Like you can, if you have recently been a teenager, you can probably look at her and be like that. Yeah, that's how I would be feeling in that moment. How would it feel to be, what does it feel like when you're working on creative ideas? Like I loved how the moments of inspiration are portrayed on screen and it felt like a much better version of like horrible attempts that we saw in the Da Vinci Code movie when you see Robert Langdon Mm. trying to like crack codes, like how his thinking is portrayed on screen. You see Dickinson's creative process a little bit here of like she's just standing somewhere and somebody says a thing and she has the inspiration for like this line and how it has come about. And I, I think we, I felt like we saw or got to dive into how it feels to be her because she is radical and she is weird and she's fantasizing about getting into a carriage with death played by Wiz Khalifa and the music is like very like present and jarring as well and I think all of that adds up to identifying with her with how out of place she feels in this world yeah I had this note at the end I was like I think I would really like the show if it wasn't called Dickinson and it wasn't about Emily Dickinson if Haley Stanfield was named something else mm. and she was 16 and trying to be a writer in Amherst and the show was exactly the same. Like I just, for me, I don't, you just the can't. poetry isn't, the poetry isn't at the center of this. Like, and if you're not actually representing what Emily Dickinson's life was and the radicality of it, then I'm not sure what the Dickensian layer or Dickensian, the Dickensian <laughs> layer is not the, the Dickensonian layer adds. If you're not actually grip grappling with the art or the reality of it, like, that part, because I, Haley Stanfield, I'll watch her do anything. She's mm-hmm. awesome. 
she's an awesome actress. I loved her in Edge of Seventeen. She made the movie Bumblebee almost watchable by herself. <laughs> it wasn't. But so I'm like, I was in on it. I'm like, I kind of want Stars Hollow 1851. Like I'm kind of in on that. Oh. But like the 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 taking this literary history that I know and then Cavalier is too strong, but being loose is too weak. I, to be almost flippant about the history, I don't know. It felt weird to me. And also mm. I'd like to know, I, I think, I don't know if there's another, I think they already renewed it for another season. I have no idea where their season ends, but in when Emily Dickinson's a teenager, she's described as, you know, a, a vibrant girl and she goes to school. It gets dark for her right. over mm-hmm. her life. And I'm fascinated to see whether or not they choose to take up the thread of that truth yeah, or not. That like, really matters. I, I just don't know. Like, if they if the show runs into that period of her life, it really, really will matter how they address that. And to erace that would be like a travesty on on several levels. I feel like maybe sh- that's what I'm afraid of. I think that, I might be I, afraid of that. That I get that. Um, yeah, I feel like we've seen that. For me, the first episode landed in terms of it feels radical and weird, and it's telling us about how radical and weird she was. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about other casting at all? Yeah, I mean, maybe from the three shows, are there any standout performances? Whether you not, like you you mentioned um, Mrs. Coulter in oh yeah Ruth his Wilson Dark and... Ruth Wilson who has like a demon frog kind of a face, which is kind of great <laughs> for this this portrayal of yeah. Mrs. Coulter, if you, especially I mean, if you know where that's going. Regina King is going to make Watchmen for for me totally. Um, she has a thing on camera of being competent. And she's short and small and like powerful, but also vulnerable. That's magnetic. She's yeah. unbelievable. I feel Regina like I've King. loved her since she played Cuba Gooding Jr.'s wife and Jerry Maguire and was all mm-hmm. that same sort of like powerful, competent, but sensitive female character, that woman at the same time that I just love watching her. I find her so compelling and believable. Um, I was glad, I think in Dickinson, I love Toby Huss. Um, and we, and Toby Huss is showing up, not speaking in a Southern accent. So like part of my brain was like, Toby Huss is Emily Dickinson's father. And he's talking like old school Amherst because he's just always Southern. Um, my only quibble, I think across any of these three that we watched about casting is I think it's impossible to take Jane Krakowski seriously. (laughs) I don't think you're supposed to. I think that's a, like her, Looking like she's barely holding it together is part of the shtick for that character there. Like, she looks like she's about to explode into (laughs) into a murderous (laughs) rage. And there's something about her face and her energy that if she's not full Jane Krakowski, you realize that the the nuclear rod has been pulled out and this thing could melt down. I actually kind of like that weird tension, that that energy she was throwing off there. But it was notable. I definitely agree. Yeah, it's definitely a weird energy. I just, I'm not sure it was the weird energy I wanted. Um, And and it could just be, I'm so used to seeing her in like just straight comedy um, yeah. that watching her and I, I'm waiting for the punchline and I don't think we're going to get a punchline here. It just, it, it unsettled mm. me, but maybe the unsettledness of it is intentional. <laughs> you know, Lyra has a lot of work to do in his dark materials. Um, and the young woman is called Daphne Freen or something like that I, in the credits. I, I can't read mm. my own handwriting. I think she's good there's just a lot of time of watching her think and react to stuff that that's so much work to do. It's just a really hard role and she's not bad. It's just the book, the book, you know, books are different as 
I know it's going to come as a shock to everybody, <laughs> but for some reason it doesn't feel as claustrophobic to spend that much time with one character who is also trapped. But the, mm. the episode feels very claustrophobic and there's a lot of close-up of Lyra looking at stuff. And I'm like, this is, this is tough acting. She doesn't get much chance to react in a human way to other people. She's usually subject to them besides her one friend who then summarily gets kidnapped. Like tough look for Lyra and her friends here. Um, McAvoy is doing a, I don't know the, 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 as you, I think you headed on something interesting about the adult performances, which they're kind of one note. Like they each have sort of one trait that they perform and that's who they are to Lyra, who is our cipher for the whole show. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot to do. And it's a lot of acting by herself, which in a movie is just very difficult to do. One of the things, again, to bring it back to Harry Potter and what it does is like he gets Ron and Hermione pretty quick in that. So he has allies yeah. and friends and co-conspirators and Lyra's alone. And even when she's not alone, she has these weird relationships. I just think it's so hard to do. I love to see Tim Blake Nelson. I'm just in my, I have my standout categories. I'll watch him again. I don't care what Tim Blake Nelson is doing. (laughs) He's just weird and interesting every single time. And he's particularly weird and interesting in this one because most of the time his face is covered up and he's really laying into this sort of draw-like character. And he's a weird-looking guy who's using this head covering to seem more intimidating, I guess. That part was all really interesting. Mm -hmm. I thought it it was great. Um, Yeah, anything else? So Watchmen, we're both in on. Yeah. You're in on Dickinson. We're both out on His Dark Materials. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let us know what you thought. Last words, Rebecca, here. This was fun. I'm glad we had so many good contenders at once because we have occasionally been like, have we jumped the shark in the land of adaptations. Yes, Just that's so true. Many, you know, like, did we peak already? How many more adaptations could there possibly be? But three really interesting ones that all dropped at the same time at the start of the season um, was, or three potentially really interesting ones. I'm glad that we got to do all of these. And it was fun to watch them in succession and sort of think about how would I, how would I choose between yeah. these if I were going to just pick one? Um, yeah, and none I was also, a turkey. None, was, yeah. none of them was a turkey, really. I mean, yeah, His Dark Materials kind of was okay, but... Yeah, I think I feel bad. like this is just not for me about His Dark Materials and the way that you're sounding like you feel like that about Dickinson. That mm. um, I'm also starting to think about the winter, like late winter TV time when, um, mm. like I think in February, Little Fires Everywhere will come out on Hulu. And I wonder if there are some other adaptations around the same time that we could do this with but this was fun it was a good way to end our bonus episodes it was the only one that we missed that is getting a little buzz because apparently it's really good um is um a mini series on hulu adaptation of looking for alaska by john green which apparently is great and also i i, I don't think it's as strong as a remix of the of the mm. book but it's does something different and apparently that's really good so if you're looking for another one out there you might go try looking for alaska which is which hits a quadrant well, there's more than quad, which is a space we haven't hit here, which is realism. You know, yeah. none of these are realist TV shows that we talked about today, and that one is. Um, it's interesting, too. I think in a different world in which, and we have lived through this world because we've seen it, His Dark Materials, Watchmen, and Looking for Alaska would be or were all movies. And now, because of the way of the world, they're getting a series treatment, which... It's just interesting. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. His Dark Materials, You watched, I watched the first two hours of that, and they're just now sort of getting started. And the Golden Compass did the whole book in two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. And in that regard, I'm like, how could the movie have ever been good? 
<laughs> in that way. Like in Watchmen, I mean, for that matter, too, like how could the book have ever been anything interesting other than paint by numbers when it's just trying to get through the plot? Um, the flip of that is if you can tell the whole story in two hours, why do you need a season or four seasons of TV? Well, that's what I was thinking about Dickinson. Like if one of these needed to, if, if I could, if I had to pick one of these to be a two hour movie, I think maybe I would pick Dickinson a, to get through it, but also you would see the arc all in one entire mm-hmm. where some of my trepidation was where, how are they going to do this? Where am I going to end up? Um, and instead, it's what eight episodes with another season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think I, I could have been in on Dickinson as a limited run miniseries, or a this is just a one-off eight-episode season that will tell yeah. the whole the whole story. Because I do think it's very important that they address uh, her, her adulthood and how dark and difficult it was, and I have some questions about how long it might take to get there. But this, it's so weird. They could also play with time in how the series runs. So I'll keep yeah. you posted. Yeah, I guess the other the bookend on this is we've had a couple of high profile literary adaptations come out in movie theaters this year, um, notably The Goldfinch and Motherless Brooklyn, which both I think the technical term is crap the bed at the box mm-hmm. office. Like The Goldfinch is my understanding is an all time box office turkey like did $4 million in business on a $80 million budget. And Ed Norton's version of Motherless Brooklyn that he's been trying to get made into for a million years, which is a remix of the original. It's yeah. set in a different time and it's sort of a different place. So remix is not the pixie dust you can drip on anything. That did like $3.5 million in business in the opening weekend. So I don't. And maybe they're just bad. You know, sometimes movies are just bad. They're just bad. But sometimes people don't want to go see something they've already read on screen if there's not a real hook to say that it's going to be an additive experience rather rather than just a mimetic one, um, yeah. which is interesting. All right, Rebecca, we will talk to you later. And everyone else, um, thanks so much for listening to these bonus episodes. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Good feedback and you know criticisms and praise about what we can do with these extra time together would be really fascinating and helpful for us to hear. Rebecca, thank you. We'll talk to you soon, I'm sure, in some capacity. (laughs) Have a good one. 